podcast that turns stories into songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today, we have an excerpt from David Sedaris's Theft by Finding and a song written in response by Jacob Ewald of Slaughter Beach Dog. As you'll hear, this book was important not only in Jacob's artistic development, but in figuring out who he wanted to be as a human being. Please note, all music in this episode is by and courtesy of Slaughter Beach Dog. Here's David Sedaris reading an excerpt from Theft by Finding. 1977, September 5th, Sacramento, California. Ronnie and I got a ride from Lonnie and Tammy, who were on their way to Mount Shasta. The state fair is in town, and Sherry Lewis is performing. We slept out in the open next to the American River. September 8th, Mount Hood, Oregon. Sidetracked en route to Yakima. We met a couple named Pops and Jeannie who will pick us up at six tomorrow morning and take us to an orchard. Pops, who calls himself a fruit tramp, guessed that Ronnie and I might make $300 between the two of us before the season is over. We're sleeping tonight on a golf course. I feel the way I always feel before starting a new job. Nervous. September 11th, Odell, Oregon. I wonder how long three minutes is. My soft-boiled legs are on the wood stove, tumbling in their little pan. It's Sunday, our day off, raining. Ronnie and I are living in a wood cabin with a soft brass bed, a fridge, four chairs, a table, and lots of logs. Sometimes a cat comes in and I feed him, her, hot dogs. My socks are drying, the floor needs sweeping, and the couple in the trailer next door are eating. This morning I saw the wife trudging to the outhouse in her bathrobe. We're working for a man named Norm. His friends call him Pee-wee. It's cold enough outside to see my breath. Acorns are falling on the roof. October 20th, Vancouver, British Columbia. After a hotel for eight fifty a night, Ronnie and I found an apartment that's $30 a week for the both of us. I worry about money, but when it's gone, it's gone. I smoked my first cigarette. It's embarrassing, but you do get a buzz off it. I did anyway, on Davy Street. October 25th. I now own a black jacket and a pair of brown, heavy wool trousers that come up past my navel and button at the ankle. Canadian Army pants? When it comes to clothes, all anyone has to say is, that looks good, and I'll buy it. So I was walking down the street in my new uniform, very happy, when a guy looked me over and said to his friend, who's a faggot? Then I was just an idiot with stupid clothes on. Ronnie and I leave tomorrow. I'll be glad to go. The dryers in Canada cost 10 cents for 15 minutes. October 26th, Everett, Washington. At the Beehive Cafe, one egg is 25 cents. It's $2 for an egg at Denny's. Yesterday, we were picked up by two fishermen, Ed and Riley. Then we got a ride with Mark, who let us sleep in his trailer. At six this morning, he bounded into the living room naked and said, Let's go! He had just returned from his high school reunion. He was in the band. October 27th, Blaine, Oregon. Some asshole stopped last night and pointed at Ronnie, saying, I'll take the girl. 
October 29th, Portland, Oregon. Ronnie and I are at the Broadway Hotel, a cheap and depressing place, scary. There is a real poor and a funky poor. This is the real kind. The lobby is full of dying old people, cripples, and a girl who ate hamburger after hamburger, pouring ketchup on every bite. Toilets are down the hall. Our carpet has vomit on it. We have a torn-up kitchen chair and a nasty bed. The second floor smells like donuts, but ours smells like puke and piss. Our fellow guests, winos, and the down on their luck are the ones our parents always warned us about. November 6th, San Francisco, California. I called home and talked to Mom. It was so nice to hear her voice. I didn't want to hang up. She said Paul was hurt that I hadn't written to him, but I just did a few days ago. November 9th, Bakersfield, California. We finally made it to Bakersfield. The countryside here is flat and scrubby. A guy named Doug gave us a nice long ride and told us about his cousin who got stabbed. Last night, under the stars in a pasture in our sleeping bags, I poured my guts out and said things I was afraid to admit even to myself. And you know what? It felt good and not as hopeless as I thought. All that had been inside for so long. November 11th, Kingman, Arizona. Last night we crawled into the dry, sandy riverbed next to the Texaco station across the road from the Liberty Bell Lounge and slept. It is warm, and we are waiting for Al, the Apache guy who rescued us from the Hoover Dam. Ronnie and I were there for hours. At one point a patrolman stopped and told us we were in a bad place to get a ride. Duh. It got dark. Camping meant climbing sharp rocks to more sharp rocks. By the Coke machine at the Mead Lake lookout point, we ate a can of kidney beans. I can't recall the brand. No change, so no Coke. Then Al and Phil stopped. The car was packed, but Al said he couldn't bear to see anyone stranded like that. They spent the night at the B&R motel, but promised to fetch us this morning and carry us on to Phoenix. Someone said a few days ago, whatever you do, don't get stuck in Kingman. But Phil says, don't believe everything you hear, 50% of what you see. November 12th, Tucson, Arizona. There are a lot of older hitchhikers in Tucson. At the urinal, I met Jimmy Buck. He offered us a ride to Texas, 600 miles, if we'd help him unload a truck full of grapes. We did, and are on our way. November 16th. Temple, Texas. Civilization means not waiting five hours for a ride. Round Rock is civilized. Austin is, too. But I'm not so sure about Temple. Right after I wrote that, a Scientologist and a Rambler drove up. A mural painter from Dallas. A good guy. Ronnie left her guitar in his car. So long, guitar. For the song written in response. My name is Jacob Ewald. I play in the band Slaughter Beach Dog. I live in the Pocono Mountains. I like to eat bananas and peanut butter. I just had one. Wow, I thought I would have a better answer. (laughs) I am a modest slash 
extremely self-conscious person. I started the project on my own and I used to play everything and then it was kind of a, a rotating cast of characters and slowly the band has kind of solidified into a really strong group of friends and players who I have a lot of love and respect for. David Sedaris's theft by finding was given to Jake while on tour with Lydia Lovelace. With his first band, Modern Baseball, having just broken up, Jake found himself at an artistic crossroads. I brought it with me to a show that I played at a college, which is always kind of a weird experience. College shows are really weird and unsettling because you get paid a large amount of money, but the whole show is run and put on in this way that it's like no one there knows how to put on a show because it's not a concert venue and they are not concert promoters. They're like students who someone handed them like a lot of money. They welcome you and they give you some chips and stuff and candy. And then you do a sound check on like a makeshift PA system. And then they put you in like a science lab for a couple hours. That's your green room. And a really insane local band of students plays. It's the kind of event where it's the thing to do on campus. So it's not always a bunch of fans of you. It's like everyone brought at least one friend and everyone's like just drinking beer out of water bottles and stuff. So I'm at this show alone and I crack open these diaries. The, the first few years are about David just kind of roaming around out west and like sleeping in weird skeezy hotels and thinking about the art he might make one day. It was really striking to me for a few reasons. One of them was because he was talking about you know, the kind of hotels that we stayed at a lot of the time. He talks about, you know, we're sharing this place with the types of people that our parents always warned us to stay away from. Yeah, it just really resonated with me. And following the whole David's kind of journey from, you know, wanting to be a writer and an artist and not even really knowing what that looks like or how to get to it. But every day you wake up and you go do something and then you write down what happened. And that is exactly what being a musician feels like. You wake up every morning and you go, there's something to be done today. I might not even know what it is yet. Maybe I'll find out like after lunch. And then five years from now, I'll look back and realize I was doing stuff because an album came out of it and a, you know, a tour came out of it. And I met this person who showed me this thing. But every day you're waking up and you're just like, Jesus, this again? What, what do I do? What the heck do I do? It was really affirming to see that happen on the page, especially for somebody in a kind of different discipline. Because I was like, oh, this is not, you know, I'm not alone in this feeling. This is a crazy thing. By seeing on the page, David living these kind of experiences that I could relate to and seeing, oh, he, he's calling himself a writer. That means I should be able to call myself a songwriter. And at that point, I knew that it was really rare to get that permission anywhere. I knew it well because I was desperately looking for it all the time. You kind of just have to say, you know, nobody's going to take this seriously until I do. It's a hard thing to do and it's a scary thing to do. Uh, and it's so helpful to find, um, you know, kind of an advocate 
in a book or in a movie or something, somebody who can kind of remotely give you permission to do that. So yeah, David was that for me. I shouldn't be calling him David. Mr. Sedaris was that for me. That had a profound effect on me. It helped me take my writing a lot more seriously. It helped me really accept the fact that when I'm lying on the couch reading every day and like all my <laughs> poetry books that are sitting on the shelf above the toilet and when I'm like, I don't know, watching a three hour movie that's making me sob, all of that stuff is, if I didn't do that stuff, I wouldn't write anything. And when I go walk around uh, in the woods like five times a week and I just sit there with my thoughts or when I listen to old records for hours and just pick apart, what's that guitar doing? What's that, you know, what's that keyboard doing? All of that stuff is the work. If you don't give yourself permission to do those things like willfully, then your work can only be so good because you're not taking the time to invest yourself in it. The whole process widens because I got permission to realize like how deep it goes and how wide it goes. And Oh, I need to read the stuff that my favorite authors read. And I need to listen to the records that my favorite songwriters listen to because this is what they digested in order to do what they did. And like, it just goes, becomes so much cooler and better. I, I wish I would have given myself permission a long time ago. I wish I could just go back uh, in time and say, you know, you're allowed to take this seriously. In the back of my mind, I was always like, you're not gonna do this for a very long time. This is not a legitimate use of your time. And, you know, you really ought to be pragmatic because um, you're gonna die eventually and have to support a family before that happens. The thing I would like to tell anyone who has any interest in doing anything artistic is that the sooner you start doing it, the more interesting it will be at the end. I went back to, you know, some of the passages that I sent you and I was like, what is really here that I think is so interesting um, in this character and kind of David Sedaris' character as the diarist and the real human being and it was that he was confronting so much darkness every day and so much so much of the unknown but he just laughed at it all the time and I can only assume that that was how he was just staying alive um, was by laughing at all of the terrifying stuff that was happening every day and all the uncertainty. When I think of an artist, I think of an artist in song, I think of a painter. I feel like it's so loaded. It's such a tangible art form with like so many materials. But yeah, so I kind of just imposed that mindset on this imagined painter who is living this just disgusting undesirable life in New York City who has no idea what's going to happen tomorrow or even four hours from now, but kind of inherently knows that secret that I found out 
from David and that David probably found out at some point, which is that like, this is the idea. This is the goal to be doing this thing, even though it's disgusting right now. And even though I'm so afraid that the morning light is so beautiful. I think the original line was, I was picturing him in like a shitty studio kitchen with the one little bare light bulb hanging above his head all night. And he's just at the table, like drinking and watching rats run across the floor. And I think originally it was this janky kitchen light will get me through the night. Something, something much less poetic. And then I was like, oh, the morning light will get me through the night. It's just one day at a time, really. You're just gonna get to tomorrow. Like that's kind of the only goal. That can be the only goal when you have no idea what's happening and no idea what's gonna happen. But I have this window in this terrible apartment and God, it looks nice in the morning. And that's gonna make me paint something. I guess it's kind of the person that I, I wished I could have been in some ways whenever I was first starting out writing songs and really, you know, just seeing it for what it was and being like, oh, this is a journey and this is weird right now, but I'm gonna throw myself into it and, you know, get all the ink in my hair because that's the point. One of the things I'm most grateful for discovering is that I now believe that good ideas are not a finite resource. <laughs> if the creative work is going really poorly one day and five o'clock rolls around and you're like, I worked from nine to five and nothing good happened, you can say, okay, that doesn't mean you didn't work. I think there's a misconception that if you don't have good ideas all day, you didn't work. It's only work if you came out with something good. But in this business, that's not true. Because the only requirement is that you have to show up. And sometimes you show up and the muse does not show up. Or you show up and the good idea doesn't show up. Or the good guitar lick doesn't show up. And then you're in the shower the next morning and it decides to appear. And it's really just a matter of showing up for it so you can meet it when it gets there. I, I, I love uh, all, all of that. I mean, I think that is a beautiful way of framing things, but I want to push you a little bit because I keep asking you about pain and you keep saying, here's how one gets through pain. Obviously, don't talk about anything that is, is uncomfortable or, or uninteresting or, or bad. I'm not you know, trying to lead you there if that doesn't feel good. But I am interested. Um, you, know, you have a lot of ways to respond to how you're going to get through the night. But you, you keep not telling me about the night. And, and if you're open to it, I want to hear about it. You know, I think when I first started writing songs, I used the song as a tool 
to try to exercise things that were happening inside me. Like my insecurities, my doubts, my, you know, ego, my relationship with my parents, all that kind of stuff. And it was really autobiographical, almost fucking bloodletting. I did that because I thought it was interesting and, you know, authentic. And then I'm really not bullshitting when I talk about, I I feel like I keep referencing like finding this book as a time when something changed. And just the more we talk about it, the more I realize that that is true. And it's kind of scary because it's more than I expected, but kind of around the time that I found that book and it wasn't very long after my previous band imploded, which at that time was like the most difficult thing that had ever happened to me and forced me to deal with a lot of emotional issues in myself that I had never confronted before. And this thing started happening where I was like, I don't want to neglect these things that are causing me pain in my everyday life just so I can do this bloodletting in song because it seems interesting or because it seems authentic. I want to figure out how to deal with conflict in my personal life and in my relationships and in my relationship with myself and then let my work reflect the incredibly wide experience that comes from doing that because the palette becomes so much larger. To put it very simply, I started going to therapy. Like I said earlier, I'm terrible at dealing with confrontation. I'm terrible at communicating my needs to people. I'm also extremely selfish sometimes. I occasionally have really low self-esteem. I am extremely anxious. And I used to just like stew on all those things and let them just bulldoze reality around me and just not take any initiative about any of it. Yeah, going to therapy, starting meditative practice, I take meditative practice really seriously, taking care of my body. The thing that's funny is that like all this stuff makes me sound like I have it figured out and I'm good now. But the reality is that like, it's just, it's not good now, but I know how to do some maintenance so that it's not horrible. I think it's, yeah, it's kind of hard to describe, I guess. The reason I keep deflecting the, the negativity is because when I'm talking about the darkness in the song, I'm not writing from the dark place, but I am pulling from certain days, certain nights where I am just ruined with anxiety and with stress and with depression, but I have, you know, <laughs> soldiered through it on my own time, whatever that experience was, and then I come out on the other side with the benefit of being able to see it all the way around um, because I'm not trapped inside it in that moment. So it's easy for me to forget that a lot of that perspective comes from, you know, times when I actually, you know, felt horrible, wanted to die, thought nobody loved me, whatever it was. Yeah, I feel like when I started trying to do the work in my personal life, 
instead of trying to do my own work in a song, I think the song's got a lot more interest. I am unpacking this for the first time. So. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> portrait looks alright I've come to understand the light that lovely morning light come to get me through the night come to get me through the night I must be a dreadful sight that lovely morning light That was Jacob Ewald with his brand new song, Get Me Through the Night. Special. 
Special thanks to Christina Concepcion, Sally Ann McCartan, Eric Osman, and Talia Levin for helping me put this episode together. And that's it. That is the final episode of Season 5. Stay tuned for Season 6, which will launch in spring of 2024. Those of you who are premium subscribers on Apple Podcasts will still be getting episodes throughout this interim. The next premium episode will include bonus content from this episode with an interview that my daughter Ruby conducted with Jacob and a preview of a song that will be out next season. Also ongoing in this interim period is the community art page. As I mentioned previously, anyone who makes art inspired by this project or by a specific episode should send it my way, and I'll post it on songwriterpodcast.com forward slash community art. You can always get early access to the Songwriter Podcast at Paste Magazine. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste Podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Finally, thanks as always to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe. Music